You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Oh, hey. Hey, Richard. Hello. Hello, hello. Here we are. We all closed in our little huts. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Is the lighting okay here? I guess it's all right, huh? Yeah. You're looking good, yeah. You're a little dark, Bree. Sorry. <laughs> We're I'm talking about the, her, the state of her soul. <laughs> Love <and> darkness. <laughs> uh, yeah, the state of my soul. Good one. Good one, Paul. Thank you. Um, how are you feeling, Richard? Happy well, birthday. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's been very happy already. Thank you. My family called. And old Cincinnati friends called. So, yeah, I got nothing to complain about. Just me and Opie here. He's guarding me at the window. (laughs) He's keeping the coronavirus out. Yes, keeping the coronavirus. Well, thanks, Richard, for taking time um, from from your wild birthday celebrations that you're no doubt engaged in, in in the hermitage of your home, um, and joining us for this DIY uh, unique recording that we're we're embarking on to talk about the coronavirus and this pandemic and um, just to kind of spend some time discussing both what's happening in the world as well as what a contemplative um, response might be and just to meet our community in this moment and and kind of uh, share with each other some some thoughts and be in conversation with each other and just kind of ground together. Um, so thanks for taking time to join us today. Thank you for taking time. You probably put in more than I have. I just come here fresh. I hope fresh, but you've been working on this already. So thank you. And I should probably say on the onset, it's quite possible that my children or Paul's children or Corey's cats or Opie might make an appearance uh, via sound in this recording. We are all calling in from our respective homes um, and and doing this online. So just a heads up to our community if that happens. Um, Welcome to the real life. (laughs) So wanted to kick this off today, Richard, by... um, just having a conversation to begin with, just about fear. What is it about fear that can be so destructive to us? And as I was reflecting on that um, in the midst of what's happening in the world, I was thinking about, you know, there, there really must be something uh, crucial about having a different energy uh, than fear. Otherwise, there wouldn't be so many scriptural references that say, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. What are your thoughts on that, and, and how can we, what, what, would, what would be the counter energy that we can lean into in this moment? You know, what came to mind while you were uh, talking was, right now it has the feeling of panic. I don't know if that's always connotes uh, something different than fear, but uh, am I going to do something wrong? Am I going to expose my children, in your case? Uh, Am I going to uh, bring on myself by my mistake uh, a huge disaster or bring it on to someone else? But yeah, what is it? It, 
it uh it be it's a fear that makes us work in a uh, rushed mindless way thinking that rushing and uh, a defensive posture I think toward life uh, not a welcoming because right now the the world doesn't feel like it we want to welcome it <laughs> it's filled with disease as it were um, yeah, I, I don't know what more to say. Well, as you, you brought in the scriptures, why does the Bible, Jesus, warn us against fear so much? I think because with accompanying it is always a kind of blindness and always a kind of selective seeing. You, you see things that confirm what you're afraid of. Uh, I think they call it catastrophizing. Uh, I know I've done that at times in my life. I haven't been doing it this time, thank God, where you just let every little indicator prove the conclusion you already made, you know. So um, I'm just trying to give different words to it because I think a lot of people, the different word might connote uh, a bigger feel than mm. fear. Uh, mm. always does. Like anxiety too, right? Because it's... There's a certain, yeah. There's a certain sense in which um, I find it's it's a it's an interesting place to navigate a, an important sense of sobriety that we need to have about the real situation that's happening around us, but without falling into this anxiety that turns us kind of into this very selfish, like you said, almost like tunnel vision of, of, oh, I have to protect myself and only think about myself. And There's it's another good phrase, tunnel vision, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I don't pretend to be a psychologist who understands the full psychology of fear, but I know when I've uh, surrendered to it, the results are never uh, richer or wiser. Uh, but always narrower uh, and uh, more, more self-referential, frankly. It's a very self-protective mode, yeah. And you, you sure can't fault people for being into it right now. Uh, it must be a great consolation that it doesn't seem, at this point, to bother children too much. For those of you who have children, uh, it's a little consolation. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. Um, Richard, I was reminded of this story this past week about an exchange between Wendell Berry and Thomas Merton of um, when Wendell Berry was asking Merton about the Shakers who thought the end of the world was coming at any moment and how they still built the best furniture even though they thought the world was coming to an end. And they also saved seeds for to improve the diets for the elderly. Like they did all these things for the the, the care of the whole. And Barry said, I, "I don't understand that." And Merton's response was, "When you think the world is coming to an end, there is no hurry. You slow down and you do the best work for you and your community." And I was so touched by that in this season of the opportunity to slow down and do what's best for us and our community. And I think that's part of what we're doing now in in getting together to have a conversation, sharing it with our community out there in the podcast world, but also by staying safe and, and, and 
holing up in our little domiciles to uh, for the for the sake of all. I'm um, I'm curious if you can speak to kind of kind of how your own experiences of say hermitages have helped prepare you for kind of the the outset of fear and a and a society gone awry and and a little bit panicked. How does how's hermitages and been uh, kind of the ground for you to be prepared for this? Well, moment. you're right that it has. I, I didn't approach this with any kind of anxiety, the idea of, of being alone. Uh, of course, I'm close to other things here. It's not like I'm out in the woods. But, uh, yeah, my years of taking Lent or Easter time really have taught me how to live alone. And the fact that I have a little bit of land around me, a, a huge yard behind me here, where I take Opie, that's my dog, for a walk, uh, it all makes it very doable. But I know most people aren't, aren't, aren't uh, used to this, nor do they have the luxury of their own space. And this is basically a, a you know, one-room little house. Um, bedrooms in back, but still very tiny. And so everything I need or I'm used to is right here. So I, I'm not doing anything heroic. Uh, but I do, like yesterday, I was getting a little stir-crazy. That's too strong a word, but is there a word for a mild form of stir-crazy? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, and Elias uh, said, let's just drive up and down central. <laughs> so we went far to the far eastern end of central, and we decided not to leave the car, you know. Uh, and the deserted streets, the closed restaurants, it was just uh, like a moonscape almost. So somehow it was a lesson. I, I don't know what the lesson is, but the lesson we're all learning the world is different. And if we're too attached to it always being one way, this must be very hard for people. We gotta have sympathy for them, I know you do. Uh, but even having Opie, uh, she was just, he was just wrestling with me a few minutes ago. Uh, you have your kids. And uh, I told um, the previous callers, you'll love this breed. Uh, you know, these dear Filipino friends got me a, a new TV with Netflix. And so I hardly <laughs> use it the first few months. I'm not one to sit through a whole movie in my own house. But I watched The Borges. Did you ever see The Borges? I don't think <laughs> I so. I should be ashamed of putting this on national. <laughs> no, I don't think I've seen it. Just but was it good? Just the costuming you would go wild over and the staging. And Now, why do you say that, Richard? Why would I go crazy for the costuming? <laughs> I just, I don't understand. <laughs> oh, the drama. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, any, I bet most Catholics would lose their faith. <laughs> over the, watching this, and you Protestants would just love it. See, <laughs> this is why we needed the Reformation, and you're, <laughs> you're absolutely right. I uh, mean, if this movie is historically accurate, it was really decadent. 
So I hope I'm not encouraging people to uh, watch diversionary movies, but maybe a few. Um, just keep your mind space somewhat um, restful by by not being compressed too much. I know that doesn't sound very contemplative, but. Well, I, I think you're bringing up a really huge point, which is that, well, you brought up several big points, actually. One of them being that we're just, we're not used to being disrupted. We're not used to life as we know it being disrupted. And which is why I think you always talk about how great love and great suffering become gateways for transformation, because those are traditionally the disruptions. And now we're facing a disruption on a global scale that is causing us to have to completely change how we do life um, temporarily and, and probably with lasting effects, um, both economically and in our behavior moving forward. Um, and so I think what you're addressing is, okay, first of all, this is a massive disruption. And you're right to say that those who maybe don't have that practice of solitude and silence are finding themselves a little stir crazy right now and might be feeling that kind of, um, I'm reminded of Cynthia Bourgeau and she talks about the desert fathers and mothers. She talked about how they, they addressed this energy called achidi, which she said was this existential angst, you know, so that many, many people might really be feeling that right now, along with the anxiety and everything else, that sense of being kind of cooped up and trapped up and, um, I wonder if you could share about, you know, one of the things I was thinking about was how, you know, the recommendations of hand washing and those of us who suddenly find ourselves being homeschool parents as well as trying to work at everything else, um, trying to keep our kids in a rhythm. Could you talk about how we might approach that daily rhythm as an opportunity to see these actions as prayer? Um, you know, hand washing as a moment to kind of be more present, showing up for our kids as an opportunity to really lean into gratitude. Um, I, I don't know, I was reminded of, of something you said too, Paul, about the, the praying the hours, your kind of original take of how to pray the hours. So um, how can we see the disruptions we're facing as part of a contemplative, prayerful office? You know, someone, well, more than one, I'm sure, a, a spiritual writer has said, God is in the disruptions. It's your willingness to accept this as not a disruption, but part of the flow that allows it to become a prayer. Uh, there's deep wisdom in that, I think. But uh, it makes me think personally, I, I don't think I've been doing it real well. When Eli, my little nurse, comes by, to make me take my pills, or he squirts this stuff on my hands, you know, to get them clean. And I do it real superficially with some irritation. Do I have to do this again? And so what you're reminding me is uh, I haven't been making it very sacramental. It's been more obligation and duty. Uh, but I hope you, the other folks who are listening are going to hear that from you, that what better thing could we do than allow this whole thing to be a teachable moment, a big teachable moment, really. As I think I said online, um, was it today or yesterday, I'm quite sure 
we will refer back to these days the rest of our lives. Like we have 9-11, you know. And what are the lessons? I don't know if you heard this other thing that the big uh, pandemic in 1919, the reason that so little has been written about it, apparently, and most of us still talk as if it didn't happen, is very little was written about it because people felt so ashamed of their behavior during it that they, they did abandon family members. They did uh, not take care of neighbor. They, uh, that's the analysis. It wasn't written up a lot. Now, maybe it was just in 1919 we didn't do such things. But I found that, I hope it's not completely true, but it's not hard to believe that it could be true, that after the fact, if you look back on it, and you just operated out of self-protection, you probably wouldn't want to talk about it. It's the way uh, my German forebears, uh, they, of my generation, still when you go over there, they don't want to talk about the Second World War. And I can understand that. Uh, but uh, I hope w w whatever we're doing, is going to be something we can talk about and not be ashamed of and, and not feel a uh, need to blame anybody or uh, guilty about, but that we operated as full human beings. That's so good, Richard. Um, I'm wondering, you know, a question that I've been asking myself with these extended periods of self-reflection is, uh, who do I imagine myself being on the other side of this? And I'm, and I know a lot of folks are are in this kind of same state of trying to, trying to ask questions, these essential questions that have kind of been timeless over and over throughout the centuries. Are there other questions that you think would be helpful for people to reflect on during this season that would help ground them in in the reality of what's happening, but also to to Bree's point about this opportunity of great love, of great suffering, there's also the potential for transformation in this. Uh, you know, we can even take that phrase that I probably use too much: "great suffering," uh, and right now stretch it out to a a, a, a real possibility of death. <laughs> uh, this is. This is even more serious right now, that what some of the approximations say is we're all at the end of this gonna know some people personally who have died during it. Now, I, I, I'm sure we're all hoping that isn't true, but uh, the, the real possibility of massive death, our death, it's there in the back of our minds, I'm quite sure. Now, for people my age, it isn't so scary because we've seen it coming, but young people like you, I just hope you don't have to think that way too much. Uh, I'm sure you think about your children right away. Uh, did I answer the question? Maybe a piece of it, huh? Yeah, yeah, you're... you're what I hear is the invitation to ponder that, uh, 
death death is a possibility and to come to terms with what what does that mean for the life we're living now and what does that mean for how we care for our family i was just telling brie and Corey before you came on that both my kids were sick right at the beginning of this quarantine and i had to bring uh my daughter to urgent care and we were monitoring my son closely but that fear that settled in of like is what is happening and the only practice that I could really sink into was just to breathe, you know, just to be very conscious of my breath because the the words and prayers that would come out was just Lord have mercy. Like that, that was it. And breath, that was all I could kind of hold on to knowing that it probably was not life threatening, but I didn't know because uh, my baby boy had the symptoms, um, but it appears to have been something else. And, we just, actually have the symptoms. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh my God, you must have been scared. Yeah, it, it started to really creep in. Um, but thankfully, he's on the mend now and uh, we're paying careful attention. But it's those moments of panic and how do we, how do we welcome them, not in, in, the, in the celebration tone, but in the, this is what's happening right now. How do I breathe through this? How do I pray through this? That this is, this is all a part of reality. Certainly this is forcing on us a kind of seriousness that uh, makes a lot of our cultural superficiality look indeed very superficial. Because we can live as if uh, death is not going to happen soon or to us. Uh, yeah, it's uh, as I said in that. Uh, was that in a daily meditation? Uh, you know, we always think it's it's never going to happen to us, but now it could happen to us. Just in a, it's a big reality check. That's all. No. Yeah. yeah, and it's I I find it's. Um... I used the word sobriety earlier because it feels like it captures that sense of waking up and kind of the reprioritization that takes place when you do hold death in one hand and then can hold the preciousness of life in the other. When we do wake up and realize, you know, my God, we are so interconnected. We can't keep living the way we were living before. Um, I, I do feel like there's that sense of 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 uh, things radically shifting, the order of priority radically shifting, and you know even in these last days with my kids, and you know what a privilege to to have to say you know like adjusting to homeschooling my kids, right? Because for so many there are much more urgent and and scary concerns, but as I've been adjusting to that and showing up for them and being in a position where I could, you know, kind of work on the side as I'm able to and really just show up and be present to them. I had this experience and maybe some of our listeners are experiencing this too, of um, this, this sense of like, Oh, (laughs) I know that's not a very, like, (laughs) that's not a very refined way of saying it, but just like, Oh, here it is. Here is presence. You know, oh, here, here's what it looks like when I sit next to my son as he figures out how to 
how to uh, how to uh, calculate a perimeter or the area of this rectangle. Um, oh, this is what an intentional rhythm can do of slowing down. You know, I just there's so much of our lives in this country and and probably in in the western world that is just so driven by that fast pace of urgency and do work and do go 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 and we're so we have allowed ourselves to define ourselves according to what we do that to suddenly have that taken out um as well as the realization of 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 how serious the situation is i I just, I find myself somewhat stunned into presence. Um, and I don't know, I don't know if you're experiencing that, Paul. I don't know if that's, if that's been an experience that you share as well, Richard, is that sense of like, okay, here we go. Here's the opportunity for us to redefine, reconsider, um, remember to be membered to that larger whole, a different way of seeing ourselves and each other. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, my, you know, working from home uh, in my bedroom here, and every time I leave, uh, my kids swarm me, and my daughter's been yelling, "Climbing Jim!" and she'll start climbing all over me, and uh, you know, and it, and it's it's like that immediate <laughs> invitation back to the present moment. You know, whatever was going on in my head, whatever whatever email I was trying to finish, all of a sudden I'm a climbing gym, and uh, it is. A very concrete um, <laughs> invitation right back to the present moment. So yeah, I I am right there with you. Yeah, one thing along these lines too you, that I've been thinking about is that we've always been in this kind of fragile state, right? Like I, I can't remember where I saw, it, but just you know that image of Earth hanging in the universe. You know, it looks very fragile, and we are. It's, in some ways, this is just kind of re- revealing the fragility that's always been there. Um, I wonder, Rich, if, if there's any kind of thoughts that come to your mind or reflections on how we hold ourselves when we get to those moments of fragility or the fear of the unknown. How, how do you, what would you ask of folks who are listening to this to say, to, to maybe engage in a different perspective with their own fragility? You know, uh, what comes to mind, I don't know if it's the best answer, but uh, I know some of you on the staff have heard me say this in the past, but I hope prayer of quiet, what we call contemplation, wordless prayer, mindless prayer, uh, doesn't eliminate the need for spoken prayer, where there's a vow that you're addressing. And... uh, I suspect in times of real fragility, you need someone to speak to. Uh, um, Maybe not all personalities, but you know, you need uh, someone there who's going to receive your words and surround your words with some kind of acceptance and understanding. So um, I, I've found a number of contemplatives who think, well, we've moved beyond that. And I don't know that you ever move beyond that. When you get into stages of fragility where the mind and the will can't control everything, you will go back to a body-based conversation. Um, 
at least maybe that's because I'm an extrovert. I don't know if everybody is that way. But um, that's what came to mind when you asked the good question. The don't, don't think you're rever reverting or regressing if you just need to say, you know, well, like you said, Lord, have mercy. Um, God, help me. <laughs> and mean it. And feel it. And rely upon it. And trust it. That's good. Uh, and I'm not sure you can always find it by just just being silent. I so the silence might precede it and might follow it. Don't be afraid to break into a word. No. I so appreciate that, Richard, the way that you remind us of that because it's it's so relational. <laughs> it's a it's that that relational flow that you're always inviting us into that that is the presence that the presence is relationship and um you know and and you also said that you named the body and the role of the body and i think it's almost as if we have to um reconnect rewire within ourselves both the act of letting go and surrendering into unknowing with the act of reaching out and asking for help and relating and how those things kind of seem to go together. It seems that that's what you're saying. I think so. Yeah. Thank you for hearing it that way. Let me hold up for you a book that I had ordered on Amazon. I know you're a Bill McKibben fan, aren't you, Paul? I don't know. Maybe you're others. Yeah, I am. Yep. This is latest book falter. Uh, uh, it had that collapse kind of feeling. And the subtitle is, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? Now, he's not a pessimist uh, psychologically, but he is just with his access to facts and figures and data, which force you to take him seriously. And I had ordered this even before this got bad. And um, I, I'm not sure still why he used the word falter. He hasn't explained it in the early part of the book, but I think he's seeing history as faltering right now, as not sure what is the next step to take. And that it can't be just more production, more consumption which has been the way we've been free to think really for the last, since the second world war, more production, more consumption, and something about it has hit a ceiling that is, I'm going to use the word ridiculous, <laughs> just ridiculous. Uh, if this is going to pull us back into recognizing the life we enjoyed before all this production and all this consumption, and making it our very name, uh, this could be very good. And I'm thinking too, Richard, about how what you're saying, how how apt that is, given the conversation in this season around value, the values of the universal Christ, and how living into that that way of perceiving Christ in everything 
is a relational, holistic, interdependent way of of living and of seeing. And, you know, when we recorded this season, you know, wait, I don't even remember when we recorded, but before, far, far before this stuff happened, um, not even knowing how critical these values would, would be, but I'm thinking too, Paul, of your, your statement or your question, you know, if we were to consider who we want to be on the other side of this, you know, I would hope that these values of the universal Christ would not just be, you know, these nice ideas or this theological conversation that people that we tune into on a podcast, but like, actually, how do we structure our societies now moving forward to mirror that kind of relational holism to, you know, to your point of this book, like we can't keep going the way that we've been going. I could see where children growing up during this period are are very tempted to think the world is a threatening, scary place with an invisible enemy all around called germs or uh, whatever word they might use. And uh, if the, the Universal Christ book said that the world itself is, is blessed, is holy, is good, I hope it'll keep enough of us from that, this sense of an ominous creation, uh, a threatening creation, a deadly creation. Uh, it's a part of it, but it isn't the foundation. Uh, so, yeah, I'm glad this came out exactly a year ago, as you know, and uh, got into the bloodstream a bit. <laughs> I don't know how much, but en- enough to maybe stop the tide of total cynicism toward reality. And, of course, that's how I think, in part, how we got to it, that the world was not holy, and uh, we just were all allowed to disrespect it. I'm not saying there's a direct line from that that caused coronavirus, but um, it's a temptation to think that way, that's all. That the world is, is not a safe or good place. And we can't go there. We just can't go there. Yeah, it's like it's not like Mother Earth grounded us to our rooms and we can't leave. Um, but I, I really appreciate what you said about, um, you know, if this world is blessed and we have not been treating it with the, the holy care and, and right relationship, how is this an opportunity to kind of redefine that relationship, take stock of the directions we've been going? And the way that our economy is set up, and the and the waste that we're producing, how do, can this be a potential pivot point to to reimagine how we do community, to reimagine how we do economy, to reimagine how we do work in a way that that ha- has a more holistic, less wasteful, less wasteful approach, um, and maybe the discipline of being quarantined, of social distancing, will be tools in our belt to help create a different way of living in the human community and the non-human community. Well said. We just, we can't have our usual entertainments and diversions for certainly for weeks, maybe for months. So isn't simplicity going to be forced upon us? 
I think so. Yeah. I'm going to look in this Falter book. He had a he had a set of unbelievable statistics. Go ahead and ask me something else while I'm looking if you have anything else. Well, while you're looking, um Paul, I don't, I don't know if you're experiencing this with your kids too, but um you know, you were talking a minute ago Richard about what their worldview, how it might be impacted by this. And I find that my kids have this, this shining orientation toward hope that can't be bent toward beauty, you know, and this is, I think why children are so sacred um, because it's this, their hearts just sort of turn toward that light, you know, even in the midst of this, you know, we were, um, watching videos from friends of mine in Spain who are, you know, under quarantine as well. And the kids are just, they're laughing. They are, they're playing, they're finding a way to create. Yeah. They're, they're adjusting to these weird rhythms. I've even found um, that my sons are interacting with each other differently because they're aware hmm. <laughs> that this quarantine situation is putting us in a place where we're, we're, we're each other's community. So there's a level of intention that they're bringing to each other's to how they're interacting. You know, they're fighting less now. Watch me say that. <laughs> if I say that, like they're not fighting, and they're probably going to storm in here <laughs> fight in a minute. But they're. I don't. I just. I, I think one of the things that I um, am experiencing through them is just that that attention to beauty mm. in the midst of this. That's not an escape. I'm not saying, oh, everything's going to be fine. Just look at a, a flower. It, but it's that. It's 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 that that heightened sense of appreciation that comes into play with that sobriety that we were talking about earlier. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to respond to that, Paul. I don't know if your your kids are in that place too, but I I'm just they're bringing joy out, and I can hear them in the background every time you um, unmute yourself, <laughs> yeah. and it makes me smile. <laughs> yeah, my kids are going wild right now, which is great. Um, and I yeah, if you if I were to take you out into my living room, it would look like an art store had burped and coughed up all this <laughs> art supplies because my daughter is just, you know, creating all these drawings and she's mailing them to her friends and to grandparents um, yeah. and delivering them to neighbors and putting them in their mailboxes. So there's, there is like this overflow of beauty that is happening because yeah. And the way that I think a lot of folks are responding to of children's authors are doing, you know, readings online or teaching kids how to draw their characters Right, I may have just said my daughter, her music teacher just did an online class. So like all the kids were singing together from their own homes. And there is a beauty, to your point, Bree, that is really being revealed in this process and through children. So much of it is through kids, just their, their innocent expression of the joy they have in life. You know, what's your understanding of when they say the virus is in the community, that it's, it's not a specific person, apparently, who's bringing it, but there's a whole, I mean, it sounds like quantum physics or something, that there's, it's embedded in the community, and then it starts showing itself. Or, uh, is this another argument for how much we're one? that they they can't trace it but i've heard them use this phrase a number of times you can't trace it but it's in the community and all of a sudden it explodes 
amazing to me. Are we, uh, again, a part of something someone calling for the birthday i'm sure the community is calling you right now richard <laughs> uh, yeah i don't know that's just intriguing me i i wish i knew the science of it yeah. what they mean by that you yeah know, anyway yeah it's fascinating because it's bringing up i mean at such a indisputable level how interconnected we are and that what that sense of oneness it's sort of you know, did we need more proof of it? Here it is. But I, I do think to your point, that sense that, you know, it, it awakens us to our responsibility for each other and our accountability to each other in a new way. It's like it's floating in the air. It's, uh, yeah, quantum entanglement or I don't know if that's what these doctors are saying, but that's what it sounds like. It's not Jim or Susan or John who has it, but we have it in some instances. And that's how it's moved over the world uh, so quickly. I just need to think about that more. You know, I, I don't think I need to read this because <laughs> it's sort of pessimistic. Um, it's just a whole listing of the, you know, what we've all heard, what's happening to our planet in ways that are just so disheartening, mm -hmm. so disheartening. Well, as, as we were talking about community just now, I wonder if you could, um, as, we, as we think about not just, you know, qu being quarantined and, and following the recommendations and the acts and actions that we can take individually, but... Is there a way that we can, um, in this moment, t turn toward one another in a creative way? Um, you know, something I've been thinking about with so many friends who have small businesses, yoga studios, you know, how we can turn and support them during this time. I got a text from a friend who actually went to the living school and he, all, he, all he texted is, how are you? Is there anything you need? Um, and I was, so, I was so moved by that. You know, that we can still think about, um, you know, cautiously, carefully making sure that the elderly in our community have the supplies that they need, the food that they need. Um, I know a lot of people are buying online gift cards to support local businesses. But as we turn, you know, I know a lot of people are disappointed, right, that Easter is, is canceled or that church is, is canceled. How can we think about online connection and, and prayer as how can we bring intentionality to that a contemplative spirit to that so that it can be i mean i i feel it right now hanging with you all like it's you know this is it's almost as good as being in the room yeah you invited me into it today thank you and how real it becomes it isn't artificial is it i even get to see you while we're talking no previous generation had this but I do hear a lot of creative stories on TV again. But uh, what's so bad about that? The beautiful things people are doing, they can't do it in a tactile way, but they can still do it in a relational way. You can be relational without being tactile. Uh, sounds like celibacy. <laughs> <laughs> 
not the way the Borgias practiced it, but uh, <laughs> the way we <laughs> the way we are trying to, and uh, it's real. Uh. You know, you say that. I'm cracking up over here. You say that, but it really is. It's, it is like the old school form of chastity. It's like, oh, we have a constraint. We're working with that constraint. And thinking again of the, the desert fathers and mothers, you know, I forget who it is that said this, sit in your cell and it will teach you everything. That, that sense that like, okay, let's work with the constriction. Let's not despair. Let's work with this constriction, but also to your point, look at the technology that we have. Let's let's join each other in prayer sits online. Let's connect with each other in creative ways, in chastity, in chastity. Richard has just <laughs> stepped away. Yeah. Richard has just stepped away because that quote you gave me a little. Oh. Can you read that? No. Oh, yeah. Someone read it. You want to read it for us, Richard? Sit in your cell as in paradise. St. Romuald. Mm -hmm. He's the founder of the Kamal Delis. And uh, I've had this here in my cell for many years. Sit in your cell as in paradise. In other words, everything's here that you need. It really is. And so a lot of people are are having to make their house into a monastic cell. I don't know if you kn- knew we used that word a lot, a, a cell. It sounds like a prison to us, I guess. Richard, uh, Richard, on that note, I'm wondering, you know, you shared with the staff about how you've been revisiting the writings of Julian of Norwich and how she was in her cell for a good long time. I wonder if you could share with why you went back to her and what she might, what her voice might have to offer for us today in ourselves. Another birthday call coming. It's Jillian. <laughs> I can get back to him. Um, well, it actually came, uh, Michael sent me a little piece uh, about Julian of Norwich. And when I read that piece, it struck me that, well, here's a woman who lived 20 years in an enclosed space. So, so I went back, and well, here it is right next to me now. I'll show you how much I've read already. I'm up to chapter 44. Uh, it had been some years since I've read her again. Her optimism in the middle of two waves of the Black Plague is just astounding to me uh, because there's no uh, cynicism, doubt in Julian of Norwich. And you say, what well is she gathering from? Because she certainly knew what was happening outside her window, but knew that her position was to uh, offer hope and prayer to that world of 14th century England. So, um, yeah, I found her, um, I returned to reading, as you see from the Bill McKibben book, because I haven't been reading too much, and returned to journaling, and I'm quoting uh, Julian a lot in my journaling. I just, I need other people who are 
beyond me, wiser than me, which is plenty of people, because uh, I can't engender all this thought uh, just in myself. I know people think I do, but I have to let other people stir the pot. And if they stir the pot, and Julian is a great pot stirrer for me. She just has one-liners that get me going. Yeah. Are there any one-liners that come to mind that you want to share with our with our audience, real quick? Or you know, uh, Patricia asked me for something uh, that she wants to hand on to the staff, which is the one I said I sent her. This is in chapter 42. When we do good, it will seem to us that we've done nothing. And this is true. But let us do what we can and humbly ask for mercy and grace. And everything which is asked, lacking, everything which is lacking in us, we will find in him. Of course, she uses the sexist language still. Uh, I don't know. There's a kind of profound, deep-level resignation that I don't have to do it right, which so appeals to me as a one, because I feel like I've got to do it right. Uh, the quote I gave yesterday to a group was, God shows such great pleasure and such great delight for each good deed that we do, and yet it is he who does it. But he takes the delight that we think we're doing it. <laughs> she has got the, the human person and the divine person so entwined, you know. It's really quite lovely that our doing is God's doing and God's doing is our doing and they're operating as one. And that's our goal. And like few of the mystics, Julian has taught me that. Such radical trust, you know? Like that's what I hear in her writing is that kind of just like, there's a relief and a deep relaxation that can allow that kind of thinking to, to be real and incarnate. It's like just trust. There's no natural. There's no supernatural. There's just the supernatural. And we are evidence of it. To trust that is our yeah. problem. We can't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or we find it hard, I should say. And what an invitation, too, to where are we seeing Christ right now? Where Where is Christ present in the brokenness? Um, I just think about Julian and the, and the plague and all that she had to witness and still being able to write like that and still being, being able to, to, to see that the boundaryless connection between the human and the divine. Um, it seems like another invitation for us in this season of how can we help to, to, seek, to seek out where Christ is, is, is hidden in the world right now and celebrate that beauty. Yeah, when the temptation is going to be to fix or to blame. That's the, the normal places where the ego goes when it's disturbed. 
can I, how quickly can I fix it? And I'm glad we're searching for a virus. It's wonderful. Uh, I hope so. I hope soon. But uh, we better not get the virus till we've learned whatever we have to learn from this. Uh, and it's a great unifier right now that the rich are getting it as much as the poor. The poor are probably more subject to it. I keep thinking of prisons and homeless groups. and yeah. I'm moved in, in what you're saying also in, in reflecting on Julian, on Julian's life and her work. Um, that steadfast hope that that trust that, um, and again, without bypassing the reality, but it's, it's that steadfast hope and that, that rootedness in God that can then allow for that selfless meeting people in the midst of, you know, massive disruption in the midst of, you know, life turning upside down as we knew it, um, as we've known it. Um, and I, I feel like that's what you're inviting us into in, with your work and in, in your life and with the center, but also in this moment is to root into that presence um, so that we can soberly be meeting the world in this and, and creatively reimagining how we might change, <laughs> how we might, you know, to use that repent, you know, how we might join a different mind about how we do life, you know. Reality is the greatest ally of God. And this reality, we have no way we can spiritualize it, find a Bible text and ignore it, you know. <laughs> it's, uh, it's upon us. And I don't say that in a doomsday kind of way, but uh, uh, a way that's going to bring us out of the clouds of spirituality into the earthiness of spirituality and we have no choice in the matter right now i'm i'm wondering um richard maybe as a way to end to ask you to offer a prayer for those uh who are listening for those who are seeking comfort who are panicked and are looking to ground themselves in a contemplative way of being through this and in through the invitation of uh, stepping into a new relationship with, with reality for all that it is and knowing that Christ is present within all of us in this moment. Thank you. All holy one, all merciful one, surround us with your mercy right now. Surround this whole globe with your infinite hope. How many times you've been through this, it seems, with so many earth devastations and historical devastations, and still springtime always returns, and a new day returns. We wait for that new day. We long for it. We have to believe it will come, or we would lose all hope. So we thank you for letting us be human beings and riding this wave of up and down death and life 
with whoever you are, infinite God. Help us not to be afraid. Help us not to bring more suffering on our neighbor, but less. And we pray that we can do this. We pray that we can do this with joy and trust and hope. Amen. 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 Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.